0: First of all, thank you guys for joining us. Um really happy to have you guys here. I know you got, everyone's really busy and it's not easy to make time, but we really appreciate it. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the synthetics ecosystem is, you know, pretty pretty well invested in uh optimism's future. I'd say as well invested as like, you know, <laughs> any of your backers or anything. Um, you know, it is no secret that our communities are very aligned and uh, there's a lot of overlap. Um I, we with the upcoming like in the upcoming few months, we in the synthetics ecosystem know how much, you know, it is, is about to unfold on optimism. And I think uh, it's a really good opportunity for you guys to uh, highlight your Regenesis and let our community know everything that's you know, in their roadmap in the like, coming
1: few months. So yeah, uh, why don't you guys go ahead, introduce yourselves and uh, tell us all about it.
2: First. Well, thank you so much for having us. Um, I mean, I've been working very closely with the synthetics team for quite some time now, and a huge part, a, a huge part of the community, and a huge, um, you know, fan of the community. So, really appreciate everyone who's like stuck with us from the early days of, you know, the synthetics uh, trading test net way back last year, um, all the way till now. Uh, and, and a quick intro is, I'm Kevin, part of the founding team of Optimism, and I lead
3: product and integrations. Nice. Yeah, I'll echo Kevin, all Kevin's Kevin's uh, gushy statements. Definitely, the Synthetix community has a permanent place in our hearts for being the uh, the live beta testers in prod for such a long time. So you guys have been heroes for sticking with us and Watching as we go and approve, it's been been awesome. And I have Ben, another one of the co founders of Optimism with Kev. Um, yeah, excited for all things protocol
1: happening this year. It's going to be great. Cool. Uh, thanks for this intro, Kev and Ben. I
4: guess um, to kick things off, um, why don't you guys give us a rundown? I think this is the first like stage governance that we've had with Optimism in, in a while. Uh, give us a rundown on you know, where we're at, um, what's been happening recently. I know Regenesis happened recently. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Ben, do you want to talk a bit about uh, the Regenesis and EVM equivalents?
3: Oh, do I ever, baby. Are you kidding me, Kev? I was just hoping you'd say that. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. So a lot of you hopefully know that we had a very, very, very important upgrade um, a number of weeks ago now. Um, so that was our upgrade to EVM equivalence. Um, so I think about, you know, to dis- if I were to describe equivalence in a nutshell, basically, it means that the system is fully, fully compliant with Ethereum in a way that is just fundamentally different, honestly, from how we were thinking about things when we started out um, this journey-, journey with synthetics. Um, definitely, a- a- it was a-, a long period of time where we thought that the OVM was sufficient, and the OVM was a very similar thing to the EVM that you could run your contracts in and deploy them to a rollup, but ultimately it wasn't the same as the EVM. There were like small differences, and what we found is that small differences compound over time, and they affect the way that tooling integrates with things. And it meant that we had to, you know, you know, bless the uh, bless the synthetic dev team for like working around Optimism specific things. And what we realized was that that needs to go away, and we just need something that is exactly the same as Ethereum because. Ethereum on, via L1 is constantly, constantly improving. And the closer that we can get to that, the smaller the diff that we can make, the better the system will be. So now with the EVM equivalence uh, upgrade that we shipped, that is more the case than it they, well certainly than it ever has and pretty much as much the case as it ever could be. Almost all the differences are just things that are fundamentally have to be you know, tweaked slightly for, for L2 fundamentally. Um so we're super excited about that. It, we've seen an explosion of growth in, in projects deploying an optimism as a result of that because it's just so so easy. Everything just works. Um and yeah, it's just the most exciting stuff that's happened to us in quite a while.
1: Yeah, maybe I could
2: share a little bit more context from the integration side. I see like Lecky from uh you know D Hedge in the in the crowd and uh like I know we worked very closely with with that team, trying to get them integrated onto the OVM before EVM equivalents, and it was quite an uphill battle. There were a lot of issues with running up to the gas limit with contract size um, and like, you know, within weeks from enabling EVM equivalents, I think they're about ready to go live. Um, so it's really exciting to seeing all these projects that we spent a lot of time handholding before just having one click deploys now. Like really we are one-to-one with Ethereum if you've deployed your, your contracts to any EVM uh, chain or any fork of geth, it will just work exactly the same. Um, and so that's been super huge. Um, and even though we still have a whitelist, so you still have to fill out a form to get your addresses whitelisted, which is a bit of friction. Uh, there's been a whole bunch of projects that have launched since we've uh, enabled EVM equivalents, even with you know the, the restrictions of having a whitelist, which is pretty exciting right. to see.
1: Yeah, that is exciting. Um, can I ask
4: for the Regenesis? Um, is that the last Regenesis or would there be more Regenesis in the
1: future?
3: Dun dun, that's a great question. So, you guys have been here as the sex community from the beginning of the, these Regenesis upgrades. And if there's one thing that we've all learned, they are pretty darn painful. Um, so, we, and, and I, will, I will just, okay, honestly, I just want to give a shout out to the entire optimism team for this Regenesis that we did, because not, not only was this the Regenesis when we had the most users, but it was the most complex upgrade period that we've ever done. Um, and so we were very, very, very pleased with the like rigor and testing and effort that we put into making sure that everything went smoothly. And it did. So that's freaking awesome. I can't, I can't shout out the team enough for that. With that being said, Regenesis is a very, very painful process. Um, the the, the convenience factor when we were smaller and there wasn't so much activity was definitely significant and was probably the right move. But as we grow, these things become harder and harder to coordinate. So there will be more upgrades in the future. We have an amazing sort of um, rounded out 1.0 specification that we're working on. It's all on GitHub, you should go check it out. Um, but we're working our damnedest to make this upgrade not be a regenesis. And because of the EVM equivalents, basically the scope of upgrades is just naturally much smaller. So I don't want to count chickens before they're hatched because we're still doing a bit of research, um, but we are pretty, pretty, pretty hopeful that the next form of upgrade will not be a Regenesis and therefore Regenesis are in the past. Yay. Yeah.
0: And just a, a, to give our audience like a kind of like um, idea, when you, when you say EVM equivalence, like how do you compare that to let's say another layer one or, you know, cause like there's so many of them that are popular now, like you have all these other layer ones that, you know, they're both, yeah. like, uh, you know, scaling solutions. What is like the, the difference there if you could like illustrate that?
3: Yeah, it's, that's a really interesting question. And the funny thing actually is that the closest and in fact, almost um, by design, it is the case that some other layer ones have already had EVM equivalents. Um, so I think the, and, and, and basically, why does that apply? Well, because sidechains are much more centralized. And so, our, you know, other L1s are sort of their own thing is maybe what's more important to say, right? So when we're building Optimistic Ethereum, everything that we build has to have security that you can root into Ethereum. And that's not the case for a Layer 1, right? The point of a Layer 1 is it builds out its own security. And that's, you know, maybe a useful trade-off for some applications, but it's not the product that we're trying to build. So all of the cha- so in fact like a chain like Polygon and this is part of the reason that you saw so much usage on Polygon is that it is a fork of Gas and therefore it is EVM equivalent pretty much out of the box. I think over time maybe they've deviated a little bit, but they're much more closer to EVM equivalent than um, than the OVM was or Optimistic Ethereum had been before this upgrade. And the reason is honestly just because you have an easier time of it when you're building the software from scratch and creating your own layer one. becomes challenging is when you want to introduce these challenge games that make optimistic ethereum a layer two right that allow you to tie the security of the layer one and apply it into the layer two system um and so honestly that is the that is the core difference that makes this evm equivalence unique for layer twos is that we are confident we have the way to do these challenges on layer one about a layer two state that is evm equivalent that ended up being the hard, hard part of the problem because it basically means you have to run the EVM inside itself, which is um, a very crazy undertaking.
1: Absolutely, yeah, I fully understand it. I just wanted you to you know, uh, illustrate for our community
0: what that means. You know, it's a security trade-offs of another layer one, of course, and at the same time, what often is offers now is like that same one click, deployment that these other, you know, out of the box, uh, EVM, you know, forks are offering.
3: That's right. And, you know, I mean, just to build color on that, right. The way that you end up, the, the thing that you end up doing in a layer two, right. Which is basically what the rollups before, before us pushing for EVM equivalents were doing was making some basically re-implementing some sort of what at the end of the day is a solidity contract or re-implementing some sort of program that, attempts to re-implement the EVM's behavior. Um, So this is what we did with the OVM, for example, other projects, you know, like ArbOS does this, right? You go and say, okay, well, we need to run these dispute games and you need that to run the EVM, but the EVM can't run itself. So you have to write the EVM in the EVM. Um, And that turns out to be a really hard problem because you can get close, but it's not quite the same. And when it's not quite equivalent, that's when you kill that one-click deploy. So yeah, anyway, just a bit more color there. It's all about code reuse. It's all about not re-implementing things, but utilizing the code that the incredible Ethereum community has already made in a way that will work for this security model.
4: Thanks, Ben. On the topic of uh, one-click deployments, um, I think there's a burning question for a lot of these protocols and the community. Uh, Do you you have an estimate of when the whitelisting will um, cease to exist? Oh, yeah.
3: Dun dun dun. I just want to caveat some, just some fud that can make me rage occasionally. The whitelist. If if there's anyone out there that wants to play, and is worried about the whitelist, you will get through the whitelist in one week, guaranteed, or your money back, so or something like that. But yeah. Kev, you should answer this one.
2: Yep. So there there is a form. Uh, there's a type form that anyone who wants to get whitelisted can fill out. And assuming that you fill out all the information correctly. Uh, you will get whitelisted whether you are a small project or a big project. So if you're a project that's itching to deploy, go ahead and fill out that form now. Um, We've done a lot of de-risking on arbitrary contract deployment. No promises, um, but there is a very, very strong chance that it will be enabled by the end of the year. Um, So very, very excited once we can officially flip that switch and you don't have to fill out that form. And I think we can finally dispel the FUD that, like, you know, oh, you can't launch your project on Optimism yet because they have the whitelist. Um, so yeah, that'll be very, very exciting to spur usage once
1: that happens. Woot woot! Yeah, definitely no fun because
0: I've been witnessing it myself. Um, you know, every project that's like uh, applied has pretty much got it right away, and you can just see every day in the Optimism Discord how all these new projects are getting approved. So there's definitely any fun out there. Put it. You can put it to rest. You know, it's easy to get onto Optimism right now. Everyone's doing it. In fact, Lyra is deploying their token on Optimism. I think they're like the first protocol to do that. Um, Yeah, so it's really exciting what's coming up. We in the ecosystem all know this. And I guess that brings us to another point. So right now, Optimism, right? I mean, to be frank, has some like centralized aspects, right? As in you can't really submit fraud proofs on the sequencers, it's still like kind of in-house, right? Do you guys want to speak to that perhaps?
3: That's right. Yeah, sure. Kev, you want me to hit this one? Yep, go for it. Cool. Thank you. I uh, I like to talk, so sometimes I got to check in with Kev. <laughs> okay. So yes, it's definitely the case. Look, I mean, to be quite frank, it's definitely the case if you go to L2Beat.com and you scroll down the list of the top Ethereum Layer 2s, all of them have a critical centralization you know, factor that puts money, you know, that 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 compromises in some sense on the security that you ultimately want from these systems, you know? So from our perspective, that is acceptable so long as you have a credible path to decentralization, right? It's like all about credible commitments. And the trade-off that you make is that, you know, users don't get all that security uh, upfront, but that upfront comes much sooner, right? And so we've learned so much. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do and realize and implement this EVs upgrade had we not spent so much time working with you, know, with you guys and with you know, Uniswap and other projects coming online. So that is the case, right? So it is the case that if you go on any of those L2 projects, there's gonna be a multi-sig or a centralized aspect to it that is going to be, you know, you know, get some Fudsters upset, but it's the reality of all the systems. So we're no exception to that. Um, What I can talk about is all the incredible stuff that is in the pipeline that will remove those barriers. So there's basically a couple of big buckets that are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly exciting. So the first thing I'll talk about is the, you know, what's called fraud proofs or the challenges. Um, So this was the main thing that had to be de-risked and honestly is one of the key innovations for this, uh, this upgrade that we were able to do. Right. The, as I was saying before, it is it ends up being an incredibly, incredibly hard problem to figure out the right way to put the EVM inside the EVM. And if you want to secure the system with disputes on layer one, which is an EVM, you've got to be able to just dis- run that EVM code inside the EVM. So the big one of the big huge advancements that we've made is we we have a really clean, really strong understanding now of how it is that you take the EVM, uh, you know, basically code and run it inside of layer one. Um, so that's a, that's a really, really big deal. And we're working with one of um, the craziest, um, uh, most, most lead hacker um, community members of ours, George Hots on that. So go to his repo, it's called Canon. Check out his work on that. It's, it's phenomenal, super awesome. Um, I could ramble for even longer about the pre-image Oracle, which is basically the center, central realization um, of how you get this whole thing working by replacing databases. Okay, but anyway, that's that's getting too probably too uh, too in the weeds. So I, that's, actually, that's I was going to say.
0: It. Sorry, I was going to say, feel free yeah, to get you. in the weeds. Our community loves it when you get in the weeds. They, you know, I get questions afterward all the time. In the, oh, in the okay. DM. yeah, so please.
3: Okay. Feel free. Okay, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Okay. So the whole one of the key uh, things that you have to do to have a truly EVM equivalent system as the EVM uh, or an EVM equivalent in EVM solution, as it stands right now, that is without a modification to layer one itself, right? So one way to run the EVM inside the EVM is a hard fork. You put it, you put out on layer one, right? You make an EIP that allows you to run EVM and you implement some custom geth code and you go and implement it Um, and you get it forked. And uh, you know, the the hard fork happens on l one and now you can run your two system. So that's something that we are looking at in the long term, um, especially as stateless clients um, and basically the stateless block execution uh, technology comes to fruition because it is actually honestly kind of equivalent to EVM and EVM. But that's not that's not going to be for some time. So you have to do something in the short term. And so in the short term, basically what, what we do is we actually take, instead of implementing the EVM, we take something called um, uh, MIPS, which is a form of RISC, which stands for reduced instruction set computer, basically a formal model for a computer and like a, you know, similar to like an ARM or an x86, or if you're a new Mac user, an M1, right? You take those different chips and those basically define a set of instructions that are executed and that's what a computer program is. So it turns out that you don't need to run the EVM inside the EVM. If you can run the EVM, inside a instruction set which runs on the EVM. And what these risk things stand for, that reduced means basically that it's meant to be a much simpler virtual machine than something like the EVM or an Intel or an, or an ARM chip. So basically what you do is you can take the geth code as it turns out, and instead of trying to replicate the geth code by writing an ungodly amount of solidity or some other language, instead of doing that, you simply implement a virtual machine that Go lang, right, which Geth is written in, and it's called Go Ethereum, can be compiled to. So instead of running EVM in EVM, you run EVM in risk in evm. And because risk is much simpler than the EVM to implement in Solidity, and because Geth can be compiled to RISC itself, you basically get equivalents through this crazy, you know, extra layer, which or this extra step of, of using a compiler. Um, so there, how, how's that for weeds? I can go further, man. I can go all night if you want.
2: That, that was great. Uh, we appreciate <laughs> it. Andy, do you
4: have anything? No, that was super good.
2: <laughs> maybe another interesting framing is like, uh, I don't know how many people were around in like, you know, 2017, 2018, but I remember like being super excited about the idea that Trubit was working on. I don't know all the details of where Truebit's at right now. I know there's maybe they went in a different direction but the idea of being able to prove fraud on any arbitrary computation on ethereum and that's what this is like this is fulfilling what that project originally was and like one of the applications of that is being able to prove fraud on geth which allows us to you know have fraud proofs for our evm equivalent chain but what's super cool about what george is working on in canon is like any program that can compile down to mips or risc could be proven fraud on. So you could imagine like there's there's many use cases other than an EVM equivalent L2 chain that could be that where you can, you know, post proofs of that, you know, computation and post a bond that, you know, this computation resulted in whatever results and prove fraud on it. Um, so it's super exciting that there's like also a whole realm of like new businesses that could be built around that, uh, that aren't, yeah. you know, an optimistic rollup.
3: Yes. In other words, sorry, go ahead. Just like it's EVM on risk on EVM, right? Risk is a generalized, you know, virtual machine that you can compile tons of programs to. So it's actually anything you can compile to risk, which includes the EVM on risk on the EVM. So yeah, to Kevin's point, it really opens up a whole, a whole new world. It's very, very, very freaking exciting.
1: And so this essentially enables like complex transactions that are, that are obviously wouldn't
0: not otherwise be, would, would be possible.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think the other, one of the other, one of the really other fascinating things about basically a fraud proof that can run any arbitrary code is that you can actually run, <laughs> this is crazy, but you can actually run the layer one execution inside the the l2 okay that sounds very 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 weak but um, basically ba- basically right like in rollups in the of the past we thought that you basically had to store something in a solidity contract to be able to access it in the evm or to be able to access it in the layer two because when the layer two, you know, when it comes time to prove fraud, you have to check that fraud against something. And the only thing that Solidity Contracts can check, so we thought, was the storage, the things that it it decides to, you know, hold onto and record. What we've realized is that actually by running, because you have EVM equivalents, you can run a fraud proof that's equivalent to the L1 EVM. And so this means you can do things like, for example, watch all of the events on layer one, and turn them into transactions on layer two. So you can even imagine a world where there's like a layer one chain that basically is running some computation. It's very, 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 very cheap because it doesn't hold on to anything. It doesn't store anything. And then during the fraud proof, you rerun everything that it did and you have access to all of that information. So one of, the, one of the important results of this is that we will get the theoretical minimum um, transaction cost uh, in terms of rolling data up. Because normally you submit a batch to Ethereum and there's a smart contract that sort of receives that batch and hashes it and holds onto it for future reference in the case that there's fraud about that batch. In this world, it is literally sufficient to just post the data to Ethereum, not even store it in a contract. You don't even send the data to a contract and the fraud proof can after the fact basically rerun that block and look at the data that was posted. So this basically, we predict, will give us like another... Something like 30 percent reduction in transaction costs to what is basically the fundamental minimum that is like like just insane. It basically uses no gas other than the gas to send the transaction itself. So anyway, very exciting
1: stuff. Definitely. And you know just to paint a picture for everyone, where do you see optimism in like? Let's say two
2: years from now. Wow, okay. Two okay. years is a long time. I can I can paint like the next uh, six months, and then maybe Ben, I'll hand off to you for the the longer term. Um, oh boy! Like okay, I think, sounds good. <laughs> so, I mean, I think in the in the near term, right? I think we're going to get to a place where once the whitelist is lifted, we're at EVM equivalents because we're one-to-one with geth we inherit all the stability of geth right so geth has you know six years seven years of you know of battle testing um so we'll really quickly be able to scale up to you know millions of transactions per day um, very 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 soon and so um i think what we'll see is like the chain reaching capacity we'll see all of the remaining major players deploying like just on the w- on the whitelist right now we've got ave curve Gnosis safe gearing up to deploy over the next couple months um, so i think all of the all of the stuff that you sort of take for granted on ethereum all of the major applications will live on optimistic ethereum and i think we'll start to see a bunch of new applications uh, like lyra being one of those examples of you know an oe native application that's getting a ton of usage and is demonstrating you know that having instant transactions and in Web2 UX really does result in a better user experience and a better product. Um, and so I think what we'll see there is probably a bunch of, you know, OE native NFT drops, but beyond that, like OE games that take advantage of the fact that transactions are instant and cheap. Um, you know, applications that are more gas intensive, because at least right now, uh gas on Optimistic Ethereum is very cheap. And it's mostly call data costs that you're paying for. Um, so yeah, and and also I think uh, I think another huge use case that will be really leveraged over the next six months is Chainlink. So right now Chainlink is posting oracle updates very very frequently on Optimistic Ethereum, uh, definitely more frequently than on L1 and on uh, some other L2s. And so I think any application that relies like synthetics being one of the major use cases where you know synthetics was able to uh, remove fee reclamation on L2 because of how fast Chainlink is posting oracle updates. I think there'll be a huge a huge wave of applications that are taking advantage of super uh, granular chain link price updates that wouldn't be able to exist on l one Ethereum or other chains uh, without that. Um, so that's what I see happening in the next six months. I feel like we'll get to a pretty a pretty uh, critical like inflection point once we have all those uh, you know major applications deployed and a bunch of oE native applications starting to get deployed. And the whitelist being removed will also be um, pretty exciting. But beyond there, I think there's there's a lot of exciting stuff with, you know, how we actually decentralize the protocol, how we enable fraud proofs, how we uh, scale beyond you know the capacity of one EVM equivalent chain. Um, maybe I'll hand over to Ben for that though.
3: Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like Kevin said, like, the future is hard to predict. Like, if you had told me two years ago that I was going to be throwing out, you know, 95% of the OVM code that I was working on for literally what already exists, I would have been, you know, surprised. Of course, it's the right thing to do. And we're super fucking excited about it. But it would have been hard to predict, right? I might have been a little suspicious. But I'll try to paint the best picture that I can. So one of the things that we... Uh, really push internally at optimism a lot is basically uh, the meme of optimistic Ethereum is Ethereum. Uh, my favorite manifestation of this meme is that optimistic Ethereum and optimism is building ETH two, where two was spelled T O O. Okay. Anyway, point being, um, especially that was funny. With was just, I found
1: it funny. Okay.
3: Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, dude. It's hard. I've got no chat to watch. Or anything. I don't know people might be hating my puns, but I'm, I'm not going to stop saying them. Okay. <laughs> so look, the truth is, and part of the motivation around this EVM equivalence, um, uh, you know, upgrade that we just did is that blockchain scalability at a research level is actually fairly well understood. And the reality is that almost everyone is trying to solve the same basic problems, right? So in the two-year time frame. Right. Oh, and and maybe one more caveat. In the six months that Kevin was talking about, we will have the layer two client be less than 1,000 lines different than the layer two client, uh, between the layer ones and layer two. I forget which one I said. So imagine you take a layer one node, right? Take the source code. You should be able to change less than 1,000 lines and now it's a layer two node. That is huge. That is crazy. Part of the reason that it's huge and crazy is that basically every update that we might make, you know, as long as it doesn't touch one of those thousand lines of code, it could apply to L1. And similarly, most of the changes that L1 will make will apply to L2. And so the roadmaps become extremely, extremely aligned. Um, and it turns out that you're solving the same kinds of problems. So what are the there's basically uh, three problems that are going on in scalability. Problem number one, bandwidth also known as data availability, also known as call data, also known as, um, I don't know, I'm drawing a blank. But this is the thing that is the amount of basically transa- uh, the size, and by size, I mean literally the like size of a, of a file if you, you know, hit Control-S on all those transactions. What is the size of those, the, the maximum size that you can process? If you think of the blockchain as a like pipe, that- the diameter, you know, the width of the pipe, the amount, you know, that, that's going to allow more water to flow through it. So that's availability. So that in the time timeframe will be solved with eth two. So eth two phase one is what we call data sharding. That is going to enable huge, huge, huge reductions in cost in comparison to where where the you know where they are today, right? It's like five bucks today for data costs, That yeah, just sense. Um, so that's one thing that will happen. That's something that we actually don't need to adopt in layer two, we just kind of naturally will come because that's where we send the transactions to is layer one. So that kind of naturally works. Okay, so that is one of the three scalability bottlenecks. eth two is gonna solve it, it's gonna be great. It's gonna be fantastic. That would get us up to being able to fit into the L1 something like 200,000 transactions every second, right? Just a crazy number, crazy number. Okay, but obviously if we were able to do 200K TPS today, it wouldn't totally work right? And there's basically two reasons why that, wouldn't, why that wouldn't quite be sufficient. Reason number one is probably one that you're familiar with, and that is gas, aka execution, aka computation, you know, aka addition and subtraction and multiplication with some fancy numbers applied to it. So you have to be able to do the gas per second, basically, that amounts to the amount of transactions that you're putting to the L1, right? So one way to do this is to create multiple roll-ups. So that's something that you can do, Uh, but you want to make, but you lose composability and you want a big composable level. So the other thing that you have to do is figure out how to the amount of gas per second. Now there's a few ways to do that. One way is simply simply optimizing, right? So if you look at the gas limit of Ethereum today without any changes in the protocol, the gas limit of Ethereum today is way bigger than it was four years ago because gas is constantly optimized and improved and um, made better. New databases, new caching layers, um, all of the state access, the access list stuff that came, um, came in one of the recent hard forks. So part of your gas per second will increase just because L1's gas continue increase and we'll keep doing that. Um, there are some other things in the, in the pipeline um, which I think is, is teased in Vitalik's um, in the, the, um, uh, the purge roadmap that he just put out recently, which is basically involves parallelization of the EVM. So the reality is that um, many, many EVM transactions could be run by your computer at the same time, quote, thread, right, on sort of a different mini computer within the processor. And the reality is you could run a lot of those in EVM today, but the, but the EVM wasn't designed with that in mind, because we weren't thinking so deeply about these problems. So one of the ways, one of the big ways that we solve the gas, um, the gas problem is by parallelizing those um, transactions effectively. Um, Okay. So that's gas. How am I, am I, is this enough? Is this too much detail, enough detail? Y'all let me do a check-in because I got to hit one more. No, not at all.
0: Not at all. Actually. I think there's people following along the gov call chat in There. I um, actually wanted you to touch on EIP um, for 4488. If, I think if you can see in the gov call chat, there's oh, okay.
3: oh. yeah, we're, we're oh, following I, along I with you. Know we had a chat. Yeah. Oh, that's very helpful. Oh, well, now I'm going to be great. Okay. Now I'm going to be more self-conscious. Okay. Anyway. Yes. yes. So EIP <laughs> four forty-eight is the IP 4488 is something that will uh, honestly, hopefully be in, uh, more closer to the timeline Kevin covered than that I covered. But this is a very simple way to increase call data, uh, to decrease call data costs. Um, the reality is that we made a gas, a change to the gas cost of data, which basically imp- impacts rollups um, because roll-ups costs come from that data being posted to L1, you know, for disputes. Uh, and we previously, uh, I think a year or two ago, the Ethereum um, network hard forked and reduce those gas costs. But those gas costs um, are still not as low as they could be because blocks could actually be bigger. And the reason for this is really that the problem, the, um, the challenge with blocks uh, with call data really comes in the, after the blocks reach a certain. So when a block is small, the, da- the, the gas cost is almost negligible. There are the, impact on the node and its performance is almost negligible. And it's only when you get really, really, really large blocks that basically have to all be sent over the, p- by, you know, all the decentralized nodes of l one, when those download times get slow, right? 4k movie. Every time there's an Ethereum block, that becomes a problem because then miners are sitting there waiting to download. So they're not mining on the current head of the chain. And so you lose you know, you'd lose security, it's an, it will be an analogous problem in proof of stake with the merge. Um, it's basically this bandwidth constraint becomes a problem, really only if you start filling up blocks in some insane way. And so as a rea- the problem is that with the current, gas pricing, the current gas pricing of Ethereum, you can do that because data, has, because data has a cost, gas cost, and if you use up all the gas for that data, those blocks would be quite large. So what 4488 basically proposes is a way to make the data cheaper, but cap the maximum size that the blocks can be. And basically what this means is that you say, okay, people that want to get cheaper call data and therefore cheaper roll-up transactions, you can have that. But for us to allow it, we have to sort of stop the issue in its tracks if it starts going too far and everyone starts doing this. And the blocks become way, 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 way too big to download. Um, yeah, so that's four, four, eight, 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 in a nutshell, it will probably give a five X plus reduction in call data costs, um, across the board for roll-ups ourselves included. And, um, it is not sharding. So these two phase one will have way, 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 way higher even than four, four, eight, eight, um, stuff, but four, four, eight, eight is a great stopgap it lets us pump up the size of the blocks, but with an upper limit so that the network doesn't collapse. So shout out to to Vitalik and all the other awesome people um, working on that EIP to make it happen because it will be great.
1: And when you uh, mention all this, like the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, all this, you know, scaling, like
0: innovation happening on the scaling side on layer two, these layer twos, they still need to settle, right, have, have some settlement on Ethereum layer one. At some point, right? We have zk, um, we have zk rollups right now live, and we have uh, uh, optimistic rollups live. What does Ethereum Layer One look like in in this same uh, in, in
3: this universe
0: that you're describing?
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, I, I think. Um, and Kim feel free to try. Thank you for letting me back so much. Feel free to hop in. I think the reality of what Ethereum look, Layer One looks like is. Um, as the settlement layer. So, I mean, I don't know, you said that yourself, I think it's a pretty common name, I think it's the right one. So basically ETH, ETH2 phase one will be this crazy data layer which will be basically making available hundreds of thousands of transactions every second. And the results of those transactions will be optimistically executed on twos. And when users want to move funds around, basically route things through the to do that. Um, so it's interesting, right? One of the, imagine that if, so I, some, something that I, that I think is always important to say is that like TPS, transactions per second, is the most uh, wrongly used uh, metric and most like the worst chilled and incorrectly used, you know, thing in the scalability space. And there's so much more nuance that goes on. So here's an example of scalability nuance. Imagine that every, user in a roll-up chain was using it by step one, depositing in step two, transacting once step three, withdrawing out. Hilariously that would be, even if the roll-up itself was cheaper, that would be less scalable because you're now, every user is sending two L transactions, right? One deposit and withdraw. So the transaction in the middle was cheaper, but in reality, the demand for L1 would be in that world. So, for ETH2 to be the settlement layer, some of the money will move directly between L2s and it will never hit L1 because that's the only that um, that, that, that sort of bottleneck can be removed, right? If everyone is withdrawing and redepositing to move their money around, it doesn't make any sense. So this is why fast bridges are extremely, extremely important because basically what fast bridges do is they amortize a bunch of settlements um, in one single transaction, right? So there's like in, you know, hop. There's this one hash that gets posted on L1. And based on that, a bunch of people move funds around um, between one rollup and another, between one sidechain and another, or you know, between a sidechain and a rollup. So we will end up seeing, seeing L1 sort of more abstractly in those manners. But even at the end of the day there, it's still used as the settlement layer. Ultimately, it, it's this single hash that becomes the source of truth that is settled and agreed upon. So I don't know. I, I, really, I really very much
1: your stuff. And so do you see like ethereum like dapps surviving
0: on layer one at all, like let's say Ave for example, like not not like not surviving, but like do you see usage like or will this all eventually just be on there too? Is it just a
1: matter of time
3: uh, i I mean, I think that I think for certain markets it's just a matter of um, there's still certain advantages being on layer one, and basically those advantages have to i um, <laughs> it's ironic because it's not going to make much sense, but speed. So what do I mean by that? Um, obviously, I don't mean transactions per second or confirmation time. But what I do mean is that when you have money on L1, you can send it to any chain without waiting one week and without paying a, you know, some sort of fast bridge intermediary a fee to get it there, right? because those are sort of your, your two options otherwise. So there are adv- – and this basically is like a composed – right money on layer one can be very quickly allocated and move around so it's possible that there are some class you know financial super users or uh bridge arbitragers that sort of have on and are using it there but then might reallocate it into twos uh when it sees an opportunity but it's better for it to use Ave on layer one it has that optionality to go to any any chain without waiting a week so maybe we will see that i think that for a large segment of users everyone will be on wallet and the usage of layer one will become very different than it is now.
1: Yeah, definitely see layer one being
2: exclusively for, I mean, it is already uh, exclusively for whales, but I I see it moving more and more towards like big whales who don't even wanna take on whatever added risk there is of of another chain. Um, Like there will always be a little bit of extra risk on an L2 over an L1, obviously that risk will decrease over time, um, but if you're just holding large sums of money and you're not transacting a whole bunch, then maybe L1's the place to just park your money and just you know uh, earn some interest on Ave. Um, but if you're actually trying to interact with stuff, uh, then it's probably best for you to
1: move to a roll-up And Ben, actually, I, uh, sorry, uh, Kevin, I saw you um, responding to
0: some uh, conversations, some discussions in the Gov chat. Do you want to kind of elaborate on those or?
2: Um, yeah, I was just following up on EIP4488. Uh, it will decrease call data costs right now when we submit uh, our transactions to l1. There's overhead per transaction of around, I think it's something on the order of uh, one to two thousand uh, gas. Um, so even though EIP four four eight will ca- cause a major reduction in call data costs, it won't there will still be a constant overhead for each uh, transaction. Um, but with the 1.0 spec, um, as Ben mentioned earlier, we will get to the theoretical minimum of of how expensive transactions are, meaning that almost all or basically, I think all of our costs will just be call data cost. So that combined with EIP 4488 takes us to um, probably the theoretical minimum for, you know, L1 submission costs for an optimistic rollout. Um, so I think we would expect... Those two combined to be probably something on the order of like a 4x, 5x decrease from from right now. Do you think that's accurate, Ben? I'm just sort of throwing those numbers out. but
3: Oh, yeah, baby. No, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, point is, the point is that you go down when you post just the data, the only additional gas cost other than the data is built into Ethereum, which is called the intrinsic gas, right? It's 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 20k or 30k gas, right? And so you amortize that over all of the transactions in batch, but that is, that is a much, 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 much lower number than that 1,000 per transaction that you were talking about, Kev. So it, 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 it for all effects, it approaches zero. Um, what's fascinating actually is that you can only get that, you can only do this um, in an optimistic rollup because the zero knowledge rollups need to basically read the data from those transactions to ingest them into the zero knowledge proof, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I, it will actually go lower down even ZK rollups than the ZK rollups fundamentally can because they need to run those um, start proofs. Anyway, so that, yeah, you're right, Kev. Very exciting.
1: So actually, I wanted to bring up something, and I hope I don't put you guys on the spot, but really want your take on that. I think the community
0: wants, would like to hear it as well. There's several different types of fast bridges out there. like in production right now you know there's a cross that has a sort of like a lending um a protocol that use uh, uma's optimistic um, roll uh, uh, oracles and then you have like something more like a, a hot protocol which is like a cross chain messenger service with amms on both sides that allow um people to move funds like instantaneously out of these solutions you know and there's a few other ones as well I, I'm sorry if I missed them but from these solutions which one do you think is the
1: most elegant or, and if if not, if you don't have a favorite, what are the trade-offs between the different ones that you think are, are important?
2: Important for user yeah, adoption. You want, you want, personally, we'll, you want to say we yeah, it? we'll share that. there are so many bridge designs. It's honestly a, a bit difficult to keep up. Um, I don't have, I don't have an amazing answer here. I, I think like, Uh, it's interesting seeing all these new approaches and it's very hard to get a sense of like which bridges are actually using, you know, what they have in their white paper and which ones are just like actually centralized, but, you know, say that they are doing whatever they say. Um, I do know that, you know, I think, yeah, maybe you can share a bit about, I know you're very familiar with like hops design, for example, Ben. Um, Yeah, I
3: can share some, I can share some thoughts here. So basically, I mean, the answer is that the answer to, do you have a favorite or are there trade-offs is a resounding there are trade-offs. Um, there's no question about that. So in particular, there's, I, I think I would bucket um, basically two sets of trade-offs that I think are meaning, particularly meaningful, which basically come down to counterparty risk. And I don't, I think it's an, oh, it's a vast oversimplification to call them centralized and decentralized, but it's the most useful term that I have. So I'm going to use that. So protocols like hop and connect, are more are and seller are decentralized i guess actually a better word that's probably the correct word to be using so basically in a protocol like seller or hop right those bridges have these fast liquidity mechanisms and there is risk that is taken on asymmetrically by the liquidity providers so if you want to provide liquidity into the hop amf you are implicitly taking on um, some risk that basically that the, the, the operator of the hop pool is basically submitting state roots correctly. However, if you are a hop user that is just simply using hop to bridge, um, you, your money is always collateralized. So there's a security property there that in the worst case of both of those protocols, people that you're using that are basically, you know, facilitating this bridge process. If they don't, uh, if, the, if, if they misbehave, in, in the worst case, you don't get your fast, it goes back to bridging slowly and you still have to wait your week, but you will get the money at the end. So that's one class of, of, that's one class of fast, fast bridges, which are basically using state channels, um, batching, which is what Hop uses, which is very, very, very cool. Um, shout out to Mover Network as well. I think Mover Network will, 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 will work like this. Okay. So that's one class is the collateralized versions. There's also uncollateralized versions where basically you are placing more trust and for the period of time that you trade into the sort of bridge token, um, if that bridge gets compromised, somehow, then there's no recourse, even, if, even after you wait a week. So those constructions are a little, are a little bit different. They're a little bit e- easier in some sense, um, and they're also a little bit more efficient in some sense. The reality is
1: that your fast withdrawal on HOP is collateral
3: somewhere as collateral. And collateral has costs. The people aren't going to bring their money there for why, And so this means that you, 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 can, um, you can basically think of it as paying for security when you're doing something like HOP. Um, now, the fees are very reasonable, um, right? But it is something that's there. And maybe as the market plays out, that'll get higher or more complex. The alternative is, is, is these other centralized bridging programs actually a risk of getting lost in the worst case. But because the, you know, the, 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 liquidity provider helping things happen behind this basically doesn't need to be collateralized in this way. The, it, the, the, protocol incurs a low, uh, the, the pro, the protocol could incur a lower and the other note is that the risk is not like, it's not like an entire L1 chain, where as long as you're parked there, your money is at risk of being security the side chains security, it's only when your funds are in transit. So I think that it's fair to say that centralized, bridge, that centralized bridges is not the same as using centralized chains or centralized L1s because the funds are only at risk for the period of time that they're moving around. So if, you know, make sure you go on Twitter and check it before, that the bridge is live and not been compromised before you do it. But as long as you do, you know, maybe there's that you'll, that you'll be safe because as soon as you get to the other chain, which doesn't take very long, then you're good.
1: Perfect. Thanks Ben for that. I mean, I, I know I like our community, I are definitely like our bridge users. So
0: for them, you know, this kind of stuff is really important. And, you know, we actually had hot protocol here before and the an excellent team, you know, Chris doing a great job there with Lido and and, and every, every everyone who's involved with Hop um, is impressive. I, I really like their designs with really these slick and smooth. Um, so the, I make one critique is that they still don't have dark mode, which drives me nuts. But <laughs> aside from that, it's like, it's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know what? And now that I just put that out there, I'm just gonna make a point to, you know, it, for the devs out there, please dark mode your docs pages. Your documents pages need to be dark mode. You know, if you don't have dark mode your docs pages, it's, 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 it's like nearly
1: impossible to read it. <laughs> Your eyes dry out, you know, <laughs> can't fall that long. So please, dark moody Docs, if you hear this. But I'm looking yeah. at the
0: time right now, and, you know, I, I think I uh, should probably wrap up. Really appreciate, you know, all the insight you guys brought here. Uh, there was one comment in the golf call chat earlier, I guess I'll just get to it. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'll answer for you. you guys, don't need to say anything Uh, about, you know, other forks of optimism like Boba and these other ones. And I guess it's pretty clear just from this technical rundown you guys gave us today, that this is not something that could just be forked by another team. And rat, you guys are, you know, top of the line in in the industry. You know, you guys have some of the, like like you said, have some, some of the best white hat, white hat hackers on your, on your squad. And, you know, definitely not something that could be replicated by a copy and paste. So just to answer that question that was there. You know, I'll put it out there. It's obvious. You know, that's why we have these kind of town halls to make it clear
1: that you know what you guys are doing here is is, is definitely not like you know what we see no. typically in DeFi. You know, a lot. It's 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 a lot more in depth and and technical.
3: Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll hop on and 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 comment on that really quick. I think that it is worth uh, being very explicit that good code is simple. Good code is clean, good key code is readable, good code is understandable. And we have been writing better and better and better the past few years. So I actually would say that to some degree, uh, just by us being good engineers, part of our goal is to make our system easier to fork. And actually part of, and, and this has actually never been done with equivalent because way more people know the EVM understand what they're forking than knew the OVM, right? So there's actually arguments um, in some ways that the protocol is getting easier to fork and, and everything that we do is MIT licensed. With that being said, obviously, there's a, to your point, there's a ton of complexity in running and maintaining protocols. And it's also a lot harder to innovate than it is to fork. So I think that, I think that we strive to continue to be leaders and having... The new shit deployed on Optimism first, and the innovation coming out of there. Um, I wouldn't disregard our really good at maintaining production systems, being able to run something that's smooth. Obviously, our team will have the, like, the best chance of fixing the bug, and and we think that it, that you know that's a clear reason to use it. But I wouldn't go out and say that forks are, you know, I don't I don't think that's fair. I don't think open source decentralized spirit.
1: So if i'm reading it correctly
0: what you're saying is uh forks are bullish it's a bullish fork it means your code is clean your you know your protocol is nice i mean it, the roll is nice this is it's a standard oh yeah and,
3: exactly and we love when there's other engineers looking at our code because they improve it too and they will give it give that improvement back to us so it's a win-win it's crypto baby
4: yeah, yeah. On, on the topic of the the devs um in the audience we see some optipunks and uh as far hey. as I know, I did a uh, <laughs> public grant to uh, Gitcoin. So, I guess um, to wrap things off for this call, um, what are your call to actions? How can, um, what grants do you want to see
1: happen? How can people get involved um, in optimism? And, and, you know, yeah. Great
3: question. Kev, you want to hit, I feel like I've been spilling the spotlight. I have an answer if you like.
2: For sure. I mean, I think there's a there's a, there's a a lot of things that you can do. I think, obviously, the easiest thing is to actually try out all these new protocols that are being deployed. Um, I think one thing that we could really use all of your help on is just spreading memes and narratives. Like, we've never been more excited about the future of the network and where we're at right now, but I think uh, we don't have a full-time marketing person. We don't do a great job of getting the word out that, like, hey, what does EVM equivalence mean? Like, what is the future of the network? Like, I think the excitement isn't always felt everywhere. So, like you know, taking it seems like a lot of you guys understand what's happening. and I think like evangelizing, spreading the word, making other developers and other projects and other communities aware of where we're at uh, is is a huge, huge uh, value add for us. Um, and also, if you're a builder, I think just thinking about what you know what oE native app could you deploy uh, that works on optimistic Ethereum, whether it's using frequent chainlink updates or, Uh, leverages instant transactions or is targeting a user that is being priced out of ethereum l1 um and just like build it and deploy it um because i think there's a there's a really exciting space there um to be explored And, and you know i see i see mike here like lyra is one of the first projects leading that push uh for like oe native applications
1: um so yeah Chief meme. rehash that. So if anyone wants to help out, you know,
0: on the technical side, if they can bring um, OV, OE native code or, or projects, you know, that would be a huge help. And on a non-technical side, you need to spread awareness and the best way to encrypt those memes, right? And so if, you, if anyone listening, they want to get involved, you, you know what to do, you know, spread their awareness, get the memes going and let's show them the community because the next few months are going to be hyper bullish optimism i could see like the tvl you know skyrocketing i can already imagine just through what's going on with myra and you know with synthetics in the coming months with futures you know it's it's, it's going to be a it's going to be the next boom
1: so get ready be early and uh make the mean spread awareness we appreciate it let's go Woo. cool I think uh, we can wrap things up then if there's no questions in chat. There's one, there's one question you
3: all know today. the answer is not coming. Shout out to Optimus Kameem, shout out to Alexander, hero of both of our communities.
0: Thank you guys so much for joining us. And it was a big pleasure. I know you guys are very busy. We appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, you know, in the future we will be another one of these and when we
1: see where we're at six six months or so down the road. Awesome. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, guys. Bye, all It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Yeah.